Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn together to Judges, reading from Judges 2, verse 6. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. And uh, if you've been following Judges, you'll see there's a repetition here of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 1. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Geash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges For they whored after the gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died... They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war 
to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who lived in Mount Hermon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. There were four testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hands of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their son, to their sons, and they served their gods. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now one of the essential things you do when you're doing Bible study is you begin by noticing or observing the framework uh, given to us to understand the book we're studying. And in the book of Judges, the framework is most obvious at the beginning and the end. There are two introductions, and at the end there are two conclusions. The two introductions introduce what happened after the death of Joshua. Uh, first from Israel's point of view and then from God's point of view. In the first introduction, we find Judah in the lead and we see Israel gaining great successes for a period, taking some strategic cities. But they don't follow through. Their enthusiasm wanes. They compromise their principles. They settle down among the Canaanites and their incomplete obedience may have halted hostilities for a time and even given them a labor force, but their neighbors, that is, the people who lived in the land, would soon be a snare and a trap, as Moses had warned them. Then we saw the word of the Lord come to them through that angel who alerts them to what God is thinking about their incomplete obedience. And can I clarify, as, as we read this, we looked at this last Sunday when we were looking at the call for repentance among the people. This is not a message to the unbelievers. This is not a message of the gospel to those outside of Christ. Here is this, this angel. He's not a prophet, but he's taking the role of the prophet, speaking the word of God to the gathered assembly of Israel. In other words, speaking to the church. It is to the church that the message of repentance is addressed just as Jesus does in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when he warns the people that they must repent. So the second introduction unpacks the reason for their inadequate repentance. Uh, you notice that it begins after the death of Joshua, just as chapter 1 begins. So the first and the second both begin after the death of Joshua. And with that, the whole generation, whole generation die. Now here's the thing. Joshua, before his death, we're told, before he let the people go, commissioned Israel with the same task that God had commissioned him. 
Now, you can see this at the very end of chapter 2. Do you notice? So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Israel, you'd expect, because that's intended. Israel. No, he says, into the hand of Joshua. Because the continuing mission of Israel was to pick up where Joshua left off and continue the work of Joshua in the land. That was the mission. And it kind of resembles Jesus' great commission to his disciples to go out and endure hardship and to labor on and to suffer in order to make disciples of all the nations. The church's mission is to continue Jesus' mission in the world. So Israel is to continue the mission of Joshua, and the narrative of the book of Judges continues the narrative of Joshua. That's why that's put that way at the end of chapter 2. It's continuing, which by the way is a continuation of the book of Deuteronomy. And as somebody has written, the unity of the plan of God and the outworking of history across the ages. Bruce Waltke in his book refers to these two introductions as one of a number of pairs that you will find coming up throughout the book. These pairs, they stand related to each other. Uh, These two initial ones, the introductions, are joined together by the reference to Joshua and by the closure with Joshua. Uh, What what Wolke says is that uh, Israel is considered politically in chapter 1. This is what they did. And then Israel is considered theologically in chapter 2. This is how God sees them. Let's pause and Look at Israel for a moment. These tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, were semi-independent entities. But they were united by a common ancestry, Abraham, and by the covenant bond that God had made with Abraham to give them the land of Canaan as part of his, his promises to them. And yet here's God coming to these people and He is threatening them. Chapter 2, verse 3, God says to them, because of your incomplete obedience, I will not drive them out before you, but they will be adversaries to you, and their gods will be a snare to you. That's what drove them to tears. But no repentance. The Holy Spirit links their incomplete obedience to the withdrawal of God's help, and security. But he's not casting them off forever, as we shall see. What he is actually doing is he is handing Israel over to Satan to learn firsthand what it means when you intentionally neglect God or turn from God's will. He is disciplining Israel. In fact, you'll find in the reading that we had the repetition of this idea of God was testing Israel, testing Israel, testing Israel to see what they would do, what God was doing, handing them over to be tested. 
Here's what the Apostle Paul says, thinking about the church and how the world can invade the church. He says this, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, God wants to purge out from Israel the intentions, the desires uh, to fit in to Canaan life and so on that are going to undermine their spiritual life. In fact, that's not what happens. The story of these two chapters is a story of degeneration. And you can see it. First of all, you notice their forgetfulness. In verse 10, there's a signal of Israel's apostasy. And there arose another generation after those who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord. That doesn't mean they didn't know about the Lord. Uh, we, we know that Israel is still sacrificing to the Lord while they're sacrificing to the fa- false gods of Canaan, the Baals. But what it, what it does mean is they do not know the Lord in an effective way, in a personal way. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. And those tears of self-pity were in themselves a clear sign of their unbelief. They didn't really believe in him. They didn't really believe in him. They professed to believe, but they didn't. Which is why Jesus, when he's talking to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, urges the church in Revelation to repent, to repent or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of the place. I'll simply demolish your church if you don't repent. It's a serious warning. Now, in what way do they not know the Lord? Peter Martyr Vermigli, of one of the reformers, says it was because they suppressed the natural revelation that is available to everybody in nature and in our conscience. Absolutely everybody is without excuse because God has, has written about himself in the natural world that we see around us as well as in our conscience. That's the argument of Romans 1, 12, uh, Romans 1 and 2. And that leaves us without excuse. So they were suppressing that natural knowledge. And St. Augustine also points out for us that they were suppressing the supernatural knowledge of God that had been given to them. That knowledge of God that was given supernaturally through the work of redemption, that is the great work Moses did, bringing them through the Red Sea, and the words of revelation that were given to them through Moses by God from Mount Sinai. They were ignoring both of those things. They were forgetting those things. And in Scripture, and by experience we know, that the days of man are but a shadow. We sometimes sing in an old hymn, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all her sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. This generation did not know why they were fighting or who they were fighting for or what God's plan was. They had 
suppressed that. Now they forgot that. Now, I wonder if you're in this room this morning and you do not know the Lord. You can know Him. Uh, You can know Him by His grace, which is His gift to you. That gift is available to you. You just have to believe His promise and ask Him for it. And He gives to those who ask. And invariably, that gift which is His grace, will bring you to Jesus. Jesus who worked a far greater work of redemption than simply bringing Israel across the Red Sea into the wilderness. And He gives us, or He is in Himself, a far greater word of revelation, the revelation of God Himself. And by his becoming human, by his death on our behalf, by his resurrection and and ascension, by his session to the right hand of God, he is not only the way to God, he is himself the destination. Well, sometimes the church forgets that. There's such a thing as covenant amnesia. The Israelites were suffering from that, their forgetfulness. Then secondly, their unfaithfulness, their unfaithfulness. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, it was one thing for Israel's enemies uh, and uh, God's enemies to do what was evil in his sight, but it was quite another thing for his covenant people named by his name. And here, by the way, we're not talking about individuals, although individuals are obviously involved, but as a people who name his name. We're listening to the Lord himself narrating the steady degeneration of his people. They have no relationship with him. They are actively choosing to serve these false gods. They become so assimilated into the life of the nations, that is, the world around them, that they are indistinguishable. Not so much indistinguishable in terms of the clothes we wear, or the jobs we have, or the cars we drive, or the homes we live in, or the food we eat. No, indistinguishable in the terms of the values that the world has. The way the world looks at money, sex, and power, we can adopt those things. We can find those things entering the church and be thinking about them this very same way that the world does. Israel has forgotten its God and is now unfaithful to its God. Now, interestingly, this is confirmed by archaeology of the Iron One period, the period between 1200 B.C. and 1000 B.C., Those who've done the work in the area and the region have discovered that Israel is almost impossible to identify. The evidence of Israel's distinction among the nations is gone. The things we would look for are the worship of God. We don't see that. And that's precisely what the, the period that we're talking about here, that's precisely what is going on over this whole stretch of period where the judges are in action. 
And today it's possible to be Christians by name, to recite the creed, to know the Gospels, to attend the sacraments, and not have a living, vibrant faith in our Savior Jesus. These people traded in God for the bales. And the exchange is revolutionary. They traded in God for the bales. The God of the Bible is the Creator. And there, there exists between the Creator and every, all creatures, and by the way, creatures include all the planets, all the stars, everything that's in the universe outside there, as well as everything that's sitting here in this room and everything that's inhabiting, and the very stones and the, the, of this building, everything that has been made as a creature when it comes to God. And God is not at all like us. God has no form. He is no material substance. He is invisible. He is immaterial. He has no passions. He doesn't feel the way we feel because God lacks nothing. He is perfect and whole in himself. He has no need of affirmation. He has no lack that he needs to be filled He has no emotional needs such as we do that require to be met. God is not one of a kind. He is not one of us. He is so generous. He is in a class in and of himself. Paul draws attention to this when he's talking to the people at Lystra. Uh, He's healed a cripple. The people go into hyperdrive in excitement because Paul has done this amazing miracle. They believe that the gods have come down to visit them and that Barnabas is Zeus and that Paul is Hermes and they want to offer sacrifices to them. Paul says, you can't do that. We're going to let you do that because we, we are only human like you are. We are people of like passions with you. And he turns their attention to God, God who has no passions, God who is not like us, God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Later he says to the Athenians, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. Why? Because he himself gives to all life and breath and everything. God is independent. He is highly exalted. He is the one. There are no, there are no trappings of human majesty with him. There are no limits to him. Where are we able were we able to reduce the entire size of the universe to be able to imagine the enormity of this universe in which we live, which goes beyond the bounds of any computation, it would be to God less than a microdot, if it is even that. God fills everything in the universe and outside the universe. He is infinite. There are no borders, boundaries. There is no end. To God. 
He is the one who creates, who sustains, who rules and wills all things. And he redeems and perfects us into the bargain. Now contrast God with Baal. Baal is the Canaanite god of storm and fertility. He's the one that makes wombs, crops, and livestock fertile. He's a nature god, and he has a girlfriend. Her name is Astarte, the Ashtaroth. And the world's fertility depends on the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort. So how do you worship a god like that? Well, Dale Raff Davis puts it like this. He says, the Canaanites worship their god with all of their glands. Don't laugh. But it's true, they practiced sacred prostitution as an essential part of their worship. What were they trying to do? They were trying to stimulate Baal to do his duty with Astarte and thus make everything fertile here below. And this goes to the very heart of pagan worship. In pagan worship, the gods have to be coerced, have to be teased, have to be persuaded, have to be pushed into action. And this is precisely what Israel fell for. In Psalm 106, listen to this account. They did not destroy the pagans as I am, that's God, told them to do. But intermarrying with them, they adopted their practices themselves. Serving the pagan idols, they found themselves trapped into sacrificing their own sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters, offering them to the idols of the Canaanites. And they polluted their country with blood. How did they get here? They failed to kill sin. They failed to identify and expose and resist a godless culture. Andrew Fawcett puts it like this, Our high calling is to be in the world, not of the world. It's not our being in the world that ruins us, but our letting the world into us. Just as a ship sinks, not by being in the water, but by the water getting into the ship. We need to give more, be more aware of the spirit of this age, which is the age of Antichrist, and we need to resist it. But I wonder what it was that made the Canaanite worship attractive to Israel? Well, it was because it appeared on the surface that it was very successful, that the Baal provided economic success and prosperity and plenty. I mean, Canaan was the land of milk and honey. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, here's what we're told about Canaan. There were flowing streams with springs and underground waters, welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, 
a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you would lack nothing, a land where stones are iron and from whose hills you could mine copper. In the Iron Age, that was paradise. So they looked around at this prosperous land. They wanted to be like them. Do you think the temptation isn't there for us today? Of course it is. But they did not drop God altogether. They simply married their Baal worship to their worship of God. Of course, the idols were nothing. Only forces of nature God created through which he works out his care for his creatures. But evil spirits from the devil cultivate that superstition. That's why that Sam I read talked about them worshiping demons. That's why Sam 96 says the gods of the Gentiles are demons. That's why Paul the Apostle says in Corinthians that the, idol, the idols are demons. And so they provoked the Lord to anger, verse 12. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Anger is the price you pay for being loved. God loved them. They were the objects of his love. They were making a mess of their lives. And God cannot leave it at that. Now understand this, when we talk about anger of God, we're not talking about anger the way we get angry. For us, anger is a physiological response. The medalla identifies a threat to our well-being. It reacts so quickly before the cortex, which is responsible for thought and judgment, has time to check on its reasonableness, the reasonableness of our reaction. Our body muscles tense, Uh, neurotransmitter chemicals are released giving a burst of energy prompting you to act immediately that's why you blow up all that happens physiologically but God has no physiology and nor is his existence ever threatened nor are his plans ever threatened The word angry, as we use it of God, is an analogical or a metaphorical word. That is, it's a human word. We know what anger is to us. And so, therefore, we see what's happening to us sometimes. We see how God is treating his church as as God being angry at the church. But in fact, God is not changing in any way. What we call anger is in God his settled, undisturbed holiness, and righteousness. In other words, God does not become angry because God does not become. He simply is. You and I become. Some of you, I notice, are becoming old. Well, I, I notice that when I look in the mirror as well, but I'm in denial about that one. But some of you look as if you're becoming old. But God doesn't become. God is, simply is. I am that I am. He introduces himself to Moses. 
He does not change. From our creaturely perspective, when we sin, we put ourselves where God is against us. Israel's disloyalty led to the discovery of what it's like when you exclude God from all your thoughts. When Israel attempts self-defense or attack, the Lord doesn't help them. He doesn't help them. He doesn't help them because he doesn't love them. He doesn't help them because he does love them. But he wants them to come to an end of themselves and call out to him. And so we read, verse 14, he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. In verse 15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. And this did not make Mark any change in God. This is just doing what God said he would do. Look at verse 15. As the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were greatly distressed. He had spoken. He had said, this is what happens. So we've seen their forgetfulness. We've seen their unfaithfulness. And then thirdly, we see their unthankfulness. Israel has broken covenant with God. Will God break covenant with them? We, we, we can, let's bring that right up to the date. The Church of Jesus Christ can go through periods in her history where she is disobedient, and God allows all kinds of things to happen to her. Well, does that mean God is going to break covenant with his church? No. But sometimes what God does is exactly what we're told. If you notice when we were reading in this language, the language of testing is going on. He to, it was to test them, to test them, to see how pure they are, how uh, obedient they are, and to bring them through that discipline. Uh, we read this in Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if God loves the church, he's going to discipline the church. You take the last hundred years. I wasn't alive in all of them, but I knew what, know what happened before me, and I know what happened while I've been alive. And, and what we see in evangelicalism, for example, and here in North America, let's just take here in North America, because I, I can talk a lot about that, because it was lovely staying, staying in another country and reading all about what happened in America, and everything that happened of value in the 20th century probably did have it happen here. But don't tell anyone outside of America that I said that. Uh, by the middle of the 20th century, there was a departure from classical, biblical Trinitarianism. I mean, what is Christianity about? It's about the Holy Trinity. I mean, God, that's what it's about. Coming to know God as he is in himself. The heart of the gospel is the Holy Trinity. And it was within evangelicalism that it became basically a free pass to talk about the Holy Trinity in any language you liked, in any form you liked, with all the formulas that you could make up in your mind to describe what was going on. You know, the Holy Trinity is a dance. They're having a dance there. There are 
different persons who are running around in heaven with different wills and different consciousnesses and, and being different uh, entities, as it were. That's the way we've talked. We've talked as if you could really actually separate the Father and the Son and the cross when God is one. We've used that careless language to describe things that are true, but the careless language is actually an affront to the majesty of our great God. So is it any wonder that we've had a tough time from the culture? Is it any wonder that God has allowed us to to suffer, as it were, under a culture that is really anti-God Because God will have our attention one way or another. Now, these two distinct introductions then find a common thread. The common thread is the death of Joshua. The limited successes reported in chapter 1 in the first introduction. The immersion into Canaanite culture reported in the second introduction all happen after Joshua's death. Each introduction looks at Israel's decline from a different point of view. But what will God do about it? Will God cast off his people? While they followed Joshua, they were blessed. So what will happen now? And the answer is a repeated insight into the character of God. I want to take a moment to remind you that when God introduced himself to Moses, Moses wanted to know a bit about the God who met him there at the burning bush. The bush burned and wasn't consumed. God spoke to him. He heard a voice. God spoke to him. He asked God about himself. God said, I am that I am. The burning bush illustrated that. He exists without having to be kept in existence. The fire burned and the bush remained untinged and unharmed. I am that I am. He said, go to Israel and tell them, I am sent you. And Moses presses on. He says, no, I want to know your name, your real name. I mean, is it Bert or Fred or Jimmy or or what is it? Tell me your real name. And God tells him his name. And Moses realizes immediately that he cannot pronounce the name. It's God's own personal, proper name. And nowhere in the Bible do we know how to say and speak that name. That name that is marked by the tetragrammaton yod Hey. Vavhei. So whenever you look at the Old Testament, and you find it a lot in this chapter, you'll find the uppercase letters L-O-R-D. That simply marks where that proper name is. yod Hey, vav In the Hebrew Bible, they marked it by putting in the word Adonai, uh, evangelical people at one point, Reformed people at one point, would use the word Jehovah to point us in the direction of this unspeakable, unpronounceable name. Jesus never pronounces that name. 
fact, when he teaches us to pray, how does he teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the unpronounceable name. That's how Jews did it. In the New Testament, you will find the name signaled by the use of the word kurios or Lord without a definite article. Unfortunately, in our English translations, the English translators always put a definite article in. They, they have the Lord, even in those occasions where it's missing and intentionally missing to mark the spot where the divine name is. Sometimes it's a euphemism that's used. I am can signal where the divine name is. Or the first and the last. Or the majestic glory. Or the glory of Israel. Or the capital letters, L-O-R-D. Or he who is, who was, and is to come. These are all euphemisms for that unpronounceable name. Well, why am I telling you that? because you wanted to take away something intelligent from the sermon. But I'm telling you that because there's a repetition of a name here. You find it twice in these two introductions, and it's the name Joshua. Joshua. The name Joshua has the divine name within it. yod vav is salvation. Yohe Vavhe is salvation. The name, the, the God who is named, his proper name, the one who is, whose name is unpronounceable, the Holy One, the one you can identify, and I'm going to use this for the rest of the sermon, which will be brief. Uh, I am. I am. So you find this in... Uh, in Isaiah 43, verse 11, I am, I, I am, I, yod Hey vav Hey. besides me there is no Savior. The glory of Israel. Look at what it says. This Lord, with the unpronounceable name, this is the one who raised up judges. Who did what? They saved them. The story of this book, right from the very beginning, is about what the name Joshua signifies, that God is the God of salvation. And the flow of the book is this. Israel sins. God sends oppressors. Israel groans. And God sends saviors. And here's what we read in verse 19. Whenever the judge died... The Israelites would act even more corruptly, following after other gods to serve them and bow down in worship to them. And the story of Israel is reflected in the story of the church. You go back to the very beginning, we see decline already in the, in the second generation of Christians. Read the book of Jude. Read Second Peter. Sexually immoral teachers are infiltrating the church towards the close of the apostolic era. That's why Judas telling his readers, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Go back to that supernatural revelation that was given to you. Hold on to it. God will judge the apostates of the final judgment, but the churches themselves have to repent 
or he will remove their lampstand. And what happens to the church that doesn't repent? God withdraws his promises of protection. He takes it away from them, their success, their victories, their progress, their numbers, the people they're reaching. He he takes that away from them. Why? Because he's testing them. He's disciplining them in order to bring them back, to make them wake up, to see what it's like to actually exist as a church without the presence of the Lord with them. But the long-range provision of God still stands. yod Vavhe, I am, will send one whose name, yod Vavhe, is salvation. One who will come, become known throughout all the earth, and you know his name. You know his name. As you're first to hear it this year, Christmas is coming. You know, I couldn't keep, I'm already playing Christmas music in the car. (laughs) Christian won't let me put Christmas decorations in the house. Christmas is coming. What is the magic of Christmas for the believer? Well, let me tell you this. This is what Christmas is all about. You shall call his name Joshua. For he shall save his people from their sins. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus means God is salvation. He is the Savior. These many saviors in the book of Judges are pointing us to that one who is coming, our greater Joshua, who will bring us into the promised land. He will bring us to his heavenly city. He will fulfill the promises he has made to us. We will enter our inheritance with him. So even when the church is under the thumb, as it were, even when God's withdrawn his presence to teach us to depend more upon him and to call upon his name and to groan towards him and pray more, to be a praying people, a people who call in the name of the Lord. We have this great promise. We know he's come. We know he's coming again. Our great Jehovah, our great Savior, Yohei, and he will teach us how to pronounce his secret name when we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for your patience with your people, Israel, and with your church. And we ask, Lord, that today the praises of our Joshua would ring in our hearts as we think of him as our great champion, our great leader, our great savior, our great God. And hasten Christmas when we can properly celebrate his coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.